2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. And Lord, we do pray that You would bless Your Word to our hearts and to our minds, and Lord, even to our behavior tonight. In Jesus' name, Amen. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. Now, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God, which has been given in the churches of Macedonia, that in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much earning for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. And this, not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. I keep an old tin in my office. I was trying to remember if I've told you all about this before. I may have mentioned it, but I thought I'd bring it down here and actually show it to you. This little tin, Steve Armitage gave this to me after an Israel journey we had taken together. And I wasn't really sure what it was. It's, it's old, it's a little rusted. I thought, man, if you're going to get me something, get me something new. And we talked about it and I realized what it was. This is a prized gift for me. It it actually says on it, down here at the bottom, it says, Karen Kayamet L'Israel. Above it, on, on the back side, you can see there's the, the Israeli flag with the Magen David, the star or shield of David on it. And on the front side is a little map of Israel, the blue of the Mediterranean, and then a little blue up here for the Sea of Galilee with the Jordan River running straight down into the Dead Sea. And the Red Sea down there at the very bottom. But Karin Kayamet Israel is also uh, abbreviated among Jews. It's the KKL or the JNF. You might have heard of it. It's the Jewish National Fund. The Jewish National Fund was founded in 1901. And the whole point was Jews worldwide began raising money to legally buy and develop land in what was at that time Ottoman Palestine. Buying up land legally so that they might have again a foothold in the land, a place to return eventually to establish the Jewish state. And what Jews around the world and here in America would do is just keep these little tins on their counter and pocket change went into them. And over time, the tin would get filled up and they would send it off to the JNF and it would go into the funding of purchasing the land. Millions and millions of dollars were raised this way. Today, 240 million trees have been planted in Israel by the Jewish National Fund. Land was purchased. Literally a fourth of all of the land of Israel was purchased through the Jewish National Fund. Paul, as we open up 2 Corinthians chapter 8, is on an economic mission. Now, we think of Paul as that great missionary globally, going around planting churches, preaching the gospel. Truly, he was a global evangelist, but he was also an economic evangelist. And on his third missionary journey, that's what he's about right now. Last week I mentioned we were in a very personal section of the letter. Tonight we're in a very practical section of the letter. The practical reason that Paul sent this letter, hand-carried by Titus and two others, to the church at Corinth. 
And that reason, that practical reason, is Paul needed them to complete a financial transaction. Sometimes when we start to talk about money in the church or when issues of finances come up, we kind of close our hearts. I want you to understand, and I hope you see this by the time we're through this tonight, that this is far from it. This is as warmly personal as any work in the church. But what has happened is where money is concerned, the devil has worked overtime to derail the topic. To make us as believers, as Christians, through misinformation, to deny or or set aside or not want to really deal with ecclesiastical economics. Let's not talk money. It makes people uncomfortable and it's crass and it's crude and it has no place in a church. Wrong. The truth is how we handle money has as much to do with our faith as any other activity in Christian life. And we need to face that and recognize it. D.L. Moody said, I believe I quoted this a few weeks back, you can tell more about a man's spirituality by looking at his checkbook than by looking at his prayer book. You want to see where someone's heart is? Jesus said in Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. And so Paul now, on this third missionary journey, writes what we call 2 Corinthians. He had traveled by land from Antioch, up and around as far west as Macedonia. He had gone through Galatia and Asia, going church to church, to churches that he primarily had planted, requesting financial offerings from each of them, collecting funds as he went, and picking up carriers of these funds as well. He didn't carry the money by himself. In fact, I dare say Paul probably didn't touch the money at all. But as he went, he was collecting financial offerings from these churches. Why? Was he founding PBN, the Pauline Broadcasting Network? What was this money all about? It was for, you Bible students know, the hard-hit, famine-struck churches of Judea. The Jerusalem church. The church at Caesarea. Those churches in the land of Israel that were struggling through very difficult famine. And Paul, ever the emissary, ever the the apostle desiring to bring Jew and Gentile together, says, I've got it. We will go to the Gentile churches and ask for aid to be sent to the Jewish church back home. And therefore, we will will make the two one. We We will bond the two better together. And Paul, a year prior to this letter, had called on Corinth to be part of this church-wide relief effort. In fact, you may recall, 1 Corinthians 16, verse 1, tells us now concerning the collection for the saints. As I directed the churches of Galatia, so I do you also. On the first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper, so that no collections be made when I come. When I arrive, whomever you may approve, I will send them with letters to carry your gift to Jerusalem. Again, Paul not carrying it himself. And if it is fitting for me to go also, then they will go with me. In the letter he wrote to Rome, which would come after 2 Corinthians, he wrote, For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Macedonia and Achaia are all of Greece today. Macedonia up in the north, and Achaia is that Peloponnesian peninsula where Athens and and southern Greece lies. Paul wrote that to Rome, 
Of course, after dealing with Corinth. You see, while the call to collect was originally well-received and ultimately fulfilled, as of this writing, the Corinthian collection had completely collapsed. It was not happening. And so, writing this personal letter of comfort, Paul is now also writing this practical letter of collection. And so he begins to implore the church at Corinth to be faithful in these opening verses, be faithful to the commitments they've made. He begins by speaking a sentence that that I think speaks volumes as to why they or any Christian should dole out their dough, should part with their pesos. Why should I give? It's a fair question. Paul says in verse 1, Now, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God. Reason number one. Giving is an act of grace. I'm going to give you three things, actually six. Now let's make it nine things. <laughs> nine things that giving is an act of. And number one, giving is an act of grace. But it is not the grace of the Macedonian churches, though they are very generous. They're overwhelmingly generous. It is the grace of God that brings about that generosity. It's their understanding of what they had received by way of the grace of God that makes them generous. Grace motivates giving. Understanding God's grace opens, yes, the wallet, the checkbook, the pocketbook, the bank account. When we begin to understand and fully comprehend the grace of God and what He has done. In fact, over in chapter 9, verse 8, Paul says, God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. I think we can forget sometimes that as James wrote, every good and perfect gift is from above. Every good thing given, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. That includes the food that was on your table tonight. That includes the clothing on your back here today. That includes the roof over our heads and the electricity that keeps the place warm. That includes the lights. That includes the gifts. That includes the love relationships we share, our friendships. That includes the air we breathe. I could go on and on, but I think you get it. Every good thing in our lives is by the grace of God. And so Paul, he says, we make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia. How so? You can see it in their giving. You understand that they have been overwhelmed by the grace of God based on how they give. And Paul continues to recount this big-heartedness of the Macedonian churches, giving beyond their ability more, literally, Paul says, they gave beyond more than what they actually had to give. Why? Because second thing to note, not only is giving an act of grace, giving is an act of faith. I've said before, it's not a matter of working it out on paper to see if you can afford to do it. That was my biggest mistake for years of my adult life. Trying to make it fit my budget. That is not faith. Giving is an act of faith. And once we know and believe that what we have is from God, our giving suddenly becomes unconstrained. Things open up 
This picture of extravagant generosity on the poor Macedonian church's part is going to continue to flash across the screen of these two chapters. We'll see it over and over. Paul will talk about Macedonia and then he'll say something to Corinth and then he'll go back and say, I'm the Macedonian churches and he's using them as an example. Why? Because many of these churches in Macedonia were absolutely impoverished. They didn't have it to give. And oftentimes that's a statement I hear coming out of Christians and in the church. I just don't have it to give. So I'm going to give my time. I'll give my energy. I'll give my effort. Those are all noble things to give, but they are not money. And Paul is talking about money. And Paul is clear that impoverishment or poverty or a lack is not a reason not to give. He says, man, look at Macedonia. Their act of faith is actually quite reminiscent of another act of faith. You may remember the story. I'll just read it to you. This is in Mark chapter 12, verse 41, which says, Jesus sat down opposite the treasury and observing how the people were putting money into the treasury and many rich people were putting in large sums and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which amount to a cent. They're called leptas. They're teeny tiny. I mean, they bend. They're like tinfoil. Calling his disciples to them or to him, he said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, this, this poor widow, widow put in more than all the contributors to the treasury. For they put all in out of their surplus, but she out of her poverty put in all she owned, all she had to live on. Two little tiny round pieces of tinfoil was all she had left, but she gave it. Now I love that story. I'm sure you've heard that story. It's a, it's a staple story for teaching on giving. But think about what just happened there. Jesus is watching people give. He's sitting there watching people give to the treasury. Wait a minute, but, but didn't say didn't Jesus say don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing or right or whatever? Didn't he say giving needs to be personal and, and between and he's sitting there watching? Absolutely, it's his prerogative. You see, when everything belongs to you anyway, you have every right to see where it's going. Don't think for a moment that what is in your wallet belongs to you. And yes, I believe Jesus watches us give. He doesn't watch, I don't watch you give. You know, we put the boxes on the back wall so that it could be personal between you and God. But understand this, it is between you and God and He is fully aware. And Jesus is sitting there watching I mean, I just, I love him. He's so real. He sits down opposite the treasury for that purpose. I want to see what these people are doing. See what they're giving to my father's house. And the rich person comes along and goes, clink, clank, clunk, what up? You know? Someone else comes along, pulls off this necklace and slowly puts it in there, looking around to make sure everybody sees. And then here shuffles up this little widow. And Jesus is fascinated. And he's clearly excited because he, he calls the apostles over. She gives and walks off and he's like, Oh, guys, come here. Come here. You see all these people giving? I mean, I don't know if it was loud enough that everybody knew he was talking about them. But he was so into it. And he watches what she does. And he's excited about it. Why is Jesus watching people give? Because Jesus understands it is a measure of the heart. 
He wasn't looking at the cash. He was looking at the heart. And as person after person came up to the treasury, he was watching to see where their hearts were. And when he saw her give, he knew exactly where her heart was fully to the Lord. She gave in all she had. She put it all into the treasury. Guess what? I'm pretty sure she had dinner that night. I have a feeling Jesus took care of that. With a nod and a a wink and and a call to his father, hey, let's give her a little something extra. Let's provide. Let's make sure she is taken care of. i got to tell you something that happened. I think this is wonderful. We've been tracking giving, you know, and, and uh, kind of been needing to be more in that place now that we actually have overhead. Overhead. Because <laughs> the barn, we had no overhead, you know. And, and we've been doing these things, and we have a finance team that is very good with that and, and keeping an eye on numbers, far more... Uh, you know, gifted in handling numbers than myself, but we meet and we talk about these things and we've been watching. And so we set a budget this last year that uh, anticipated a 12% increase in, in giving over the year. Well, this year's been more like 10%. So we were off. And at first we were going, oh, we're off. Until Glenn popped up and said, wait a minute, but we've increased 10%. I mean, praise the Lord, you know, we're struggling with these things and thinking about these things. And we're, but we're trying to understand, you know, because this, this fellowship has been on this trajectory of giving over the years that's been really, truly astounding. Absolutely astounding. And as it's continued on and, and watching those things happen, but this year something took place. We're working out some things in, in missions and trying to reorganize it. And as we did that, the, Missions budget, which is actually not even a budget, it's a, it's a savings account. Money comes in, and the first we've told you, the first twenty percent comes out and goes into that account, and then is dispersed into worldwide missions. And it started building up, and it got bigger and bigger until we had seventy-five, eighty thousand dollars sitting in a bank account that was supposed to be going out. And it has always been our intention in that missions giving to be first fruits giving. That is, it comes in, and that's the first thing that goes out. And then we pay our bills and deal with other things, right? Well, this year, $70,000 was sitting in the account. And this year, giving leveled off. So, as I shared on Sunday, last month, October, about three weeks ago, we fired off a check to Samaritan's Purse, $25,000. We fired off another check to Compassion International, $10,000. We made sure that our missionaries are funded and supported on a monthly basis. And, and Steve Armitage and Mike Hoffman are our mission shepherds and are doing a phenomenal job roping this in and putting it together. And, and guess what happened? We sent that money out. October was the biggest giving month we have had. I think a record breaker. Am I right? A record breaking giving month. Now, you all didn't know that. But I suspect that the reason why things leveled off was the Lord was saying, look... I'm not playing games here, but if you're going to commit to first fruits offering, then do it. And I will bless you. But if it's going to sit in your bank account, well, we'll level things off until I get your attention. (laughs) I think God watches us give. I know He does. And the whole issue of money and church and giving and all of it, my friends, we've got to understand it is a measure of the heart. Giving is an act of faith. It is faith. 
Paul turns his appeal to the heart of Corinth. He's not attempting to line his own pockets here. You know, he's not a traveling evangelist trying to make all kinds of money for himself, nor is this a crass topic to follow the last section of the letter. I mean, wasn't the last section wonderful? Chapters 6 and 7, open hearts, open hearts. I mean, yeah, it's warm and loving and, man, that sounds affectionate and I enjoy teaching that and I read through that. And you know what Paul was not doing? He was not buttering up the Corinthians for this now vulgar appeal for money. Not trying to get them kind of off a little bit happy and feeling good and then go for the bucks. Understand that Paul knew that not only is giving an act of grace, that is God's grace in us, and giving is an act of faith, but Paul understood giving is an act of love. Number three. Giving is an act of love. We see it in the Macedonian churches. Again, verse 5 says, they first gave themselves to the Lord. I love that. That always has to precede giving, by the way. You don't come into a church and give a hundred bucks and go saved. (laughs) You give yourself to the Lord. And then as the grace of the Lord begins to dawn on you, and faith begins to ignite in you, and love begins to expand in your heart, after you've given yourself to the Lord, then you give to the Lord. And then the finances flow, the finances follow. We have no problem freely giving to that which or to those whom we love. Do we? Cheryl and I are starting to work on our Christmas budget for the kids. We always start low, and by the time Christmas is over, we've like spent the next three years. Because we love them. It has nothing to do with being extravagant. I just love the kids. And I want to give to them. Do you love God? Now here's where it gets tough. And I know this because I sat in church for 35 years... Not giving. And pastors would say, if you love God, you're going to give. And I'd be like, (laughs) Tell me I don't love God. Of course I love God. Why don't you give the ten bucks in your wallet? Well, I need it. Today. I love Him. Do you love Jesus? I mean, really? Do you love your church? See, Jesus said in Matthew 6.21, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Notice he doesn't say where your heart is, there your money goes. He says, where your treasure is, there your heart will go. I think that's a pattern for giving, especially giving by faith. You find that as you start to give by faith, your heart goes there. It changes your heart when you first trust the Lord and give. It's a marvelous dynamic. Verse 6 Paul says, so we urged Titus that as he had previously made a beginning, so he would also complete in you this gracious work as well. Verse 7, but just as you abound in everything, in faith and utterance and knowledge. See, these are spiritual gifts he's talked about. Remember 1 Corinthians 12, 13, 14, he talked about the gifts. This is a very gifted church. Paul's saying, just as you abound in all these things and, and in all earnestness, And in the love we inspired in you, see that you abound in this gracious work also. I'm not speaking this as a command. 
but as proving through the earnestness of others the sincerity of your love also. And then the kicker and truly the key verse of the entire section. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you through His poverty might become rich. And greater by far than the example of the Macedonian churches is that of Jesus who gave out of His own extreme poverty. Think about that. First Paul says, though He was rich... So Jesus was rich. Well, how rich was He? Philippians 2.6 tells us He existed in the form of God. It doesn't get richer. The Lord said in Psalm 50 verse 10, Every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird of the mountains. And everything that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world is mine, and all it contains, even McDonald's, he can eat if he wants to. (laughs) Shall I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of male goats? He says, offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. And pay your vows to the Most High. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I shall rescue you, and you will honor me. How rich was Jesus? He had everything. And then Paul says in Philippians 2 verse 6, Although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Take it a step further. He who was rich became poor. How poor did Jesus become? How did Jesus live in human likeness? Impoverished. That's how he chose to live. That's the way he lived out his life. He said in Matthew 8.20, The foxes have holes, and the birds of the air nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He who was rich above all things, God incarnate comes to the earth, and not only becomes human, which is already poverty enough by comparison, but he he becomes a homeless man. The manger was borrowed. The fishing boat, borrowed. The donkey's foal that he rode into Jerusalem, borrowed. He even had to borrow the old rugged cross. He borrowed everything, including his grave was borrowed. Now that's okay, because he only needed it a couple of days. (laughs) Three, to be precise. But have you ever stopped to think... In perhaps your want, in your need, in your poverty, in your hard times, have you ever stopped to think what it was like to be Jesus who gave up everything and literally became a man of extreme poverty who had to rely on everybody else? No. He relied on the Lord for His food, for His shelter, for all of His needs. And if that's not poverty enough, Philippians 2.8 tells us being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And some Christians squabble over tithing? Let me ask you this. By his embraced poverty, 
How rich are you? How wealthy are you truly by the grace of God in Jesus Christ? See, the tight-fisted man does not understand grace. The financially fearful woman has not yet comprehended the wealth of grace. The wealth of grace. That must be the single greatest motivating factor in our giving, which is an act of grace, it is an act of faith, it is an act of love, but it all comes back to the love of God and the grace of God. And we just have faith in God for all these things. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor. So that you, through His poverty, might become rich. And brothers and sisters in Christ, we are the richest people on the planet. Well, I'm really kind of short on my bills this month. And you're calling me rich? Absolutely. You have an inheritance that will never fade away. An inheritance that is eternal. And you're telling me you're not rich. We are wealthy beyond all imagination. Verse 10. Paul says, now I give my opinion in this matter. For this is to your advantage. Who were the first to begin a year ago, not only to do this, but also to desire to do this. Paul says, you guys are the first ones out. First ones to say, oh, we're in. Yes, Paul, we will do this. We want to be part of this financial offering. This is great. How can we do it? How much can we raise? We're we're in. And then Paul says, verse 11, but now finish doing it also. So that just as there was the readiness to desire it, so there also may be the completion of it by your ability. For if the readiness is present, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. Number four, Paul says, finish doing it. So giving is an act of grace, it's an act of faith, it's an act of love. It is also an act. Period. It is something you do. It is not something you discuss. It's not something you want to do or wish you could do. It's something you do. You could say giving is an act of follow-through or faithfulness, but I like the simplicity of giving is just an act. Do it, man. Paul would say, don't just stand there. Give something. Give what? Anything. Whatever you've determined to give, just give it. And don't squabble over it or think it through. It is not a theological construct or a doctrinal debate. Giving is not a matter of hermeneutics. It is a matter of the heart. And it's remarkable to me, just in my short lifetime, the number of debates and conversations I've had about giving. People trying to figure out exactly how much, and is 10% gross, or is it after taxes? And and can I divide it up and give some here, and some there, and some over there? And and trying trying to work it all out. Man, just give. I've told you before, I don't care if you give to the bridge, just give somewhere. Give to the Lord. Because it's a matter of faith and grace and love. And it is an act. In a parable that Jesus told, and it's one my dad told me when I was a boy. I needed to hear it. (laughs) Never forget this. But he told it in Matthew 21, verse 28. My my dad, let let me tell you how I heard it the first time. Dad came downstairs. Ron and I were having breakfast Saturday morning watching Bugs Bunny. 
glorious days. And he said, boys, we have some work that needs to be done outside. Ron, I want you actually to vacuum the house inside. And Rick, I want you to mow the front and, and back lawns outside. And Ron was the first one to say, Oh man, Saturday, Dad's my day off. I've been at school all week long. You know? And he whined and he complained. And I went, I saw that. And I went, Sure, Dad, I'll do it. I'm your good son. About an hour later, Ron was vacuuming the house. Around 4 o'clock in the afternoon, I had yet to go out and mow the lawn. And my dad said, Rick, I've got a parable for you. And this is the one he shared. Matthew 21, verse 28. But what do you think? A man had two sons. I mean, perfect. And he came to the first and said, Son, go work today in the vineyard. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he regretted it and he went. Wrong. My brother. We'll just name the characters right here. The man came to the second, little Ricky, and said the same thing. And he answered, I will, sir. But he did not go. And Jesus says, which of the two did the will of his father? I mean, my dad shared that. I just kind of went, in truth, I'm the bad son. Who did the will of his father? Listen, faith without faithfulness is empty words. You think you're pleasing God by going, Oh, Lord, I love you. Are you faithful to that? Lord, I trust you. Do you? Well, yeah, with everything but my money. (laughs) Or or I'll I'll tell you what, Lord, here's what I'll do. I'll trust you with 2%. Because that's all I can work out right now. You see, it's the one who does the will of the Father who is the Son who loves the Father. I love the faithfulness of Paul because he doesn't let Corinth off the hook. It would have been really easy for Paul to finish the letter after chapter 7 with good feelings all around, everybody's happy and hunky-dory, but Paul says, by the way, there's something else we've got to talk about. I have great comfort in you and you and us and our hearts are open to you. Open your hearts to us. This is just beautiful. You know, kumbaya, we're all holding hands, standing around the campfire. And Paul says, now about money. And he doesn't let them go. Why, Paul? Because he understood it wasn't about the money, but it was about their faithfulness. And Paul was always looking to teach faithfulness. It was about helping them grow in their relationship. It was about faith itself. It it was also, Paul points this out, it was about reputation. Because word of their commitment had already spread all throughout Macedonia and Asia and Galatia. The other churches already knew of the generous plan at Corinth to give. I don't know how that word got out. I doubt it was by Paul. Probably someone in the church of Corinth who went wandering going, Oh yeah, our church, we're going to blow you all away. We are going to give like you never saw giving. But they all knew. And Paul's saying, hey, you know what? The word is out. So let's get her done. Follow through with what you said you would do. Verse 13. For this is not for the case of others and for your affliction, but by way of, note this, equality. 
Back it up to verse 12. The readiness is present. It is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. Too many Christians plan their giving or think about giving based on what they don't have. I don't have enough to do that. The Lord's not asking you to give based on what you don't have. He's saying, look at what you have. Give from that. That's why I love the concept of the tithe. I'll get back to that. But he says, this is by the way of equality, verse 14, at this present time, your abundance being a supply for their need, that is the Jerusalem church, so that their abundance also may become a supply for your need, that there may be equality, he says. As it is written, he who gathered much did not have too much. And he who gathered little had no lack. Giving, number five, is an act of equality in the church. An act of equality. It is not something for the top 1% to take care of in the church. It's not something for 10% of the church to do most of the giving, or 20% of the church to take care of most of the giving. Paul says, no, giving is an equal issue for every single person in a church fellowship, bar none. It is an equal thing. We all share this together. Jesus said in Luke 6.38, He said, give, and it will be given to you. Right? That's part of the point that Paul's making. We're taking this gift to Jerusalem, and sometime... In the future, you may be impoverished and the gift's going to come from Jerusalem. Because that's how it works. We take care of each other. Given it will be given to you, Jesus said. They will pour into your lap a good measure. Why would they do that? Because oftentimes the robes would have a flap in the front of it and, and you know, ladies would go into the marketplace or, or the men would and they would lift up that flap and they'd have the grain poured into the flap. And then they kind of shake it, you know, to make sure it all settled down and then pour in a little more until it was completely full. And sometimes they'd hold that flap and they'd press it down, shake a little more, press it down until it's running over. That's the picture Jesus is giving. Give, and they're going to pour into your lap a good measure. Press down, shaken together, running over. For by your standard of giving... It will be measured to you in return. That's fair, that's equal, that's God's economy. That's how He does it. You give, and He's going to make sure you've got all you need. And more. And by the way, that's not, that's not quid pro quo. It's wisdom for the marketplace. Jesus says, measure your giving this way. Giving produces giving. Generosity yields generosity. Give, and it will be given to you. Not because, again, quid pro quo, but because that's how it works in God's economy. You've heard the phrase, I'm sure, hundreds of times. You can't outgive God. And I dare you to try. How many of us are willing to do that? Drop an entire paycheck in the box and see what happens. You told me to, crazy pastor! (laughs) But I truly believe this this is a spiritual law that generosity produces generosity. That the more you give, the more is given to you. Maybe not how you expect. Oh, I knew there was a caveat. No, it may not be exactly how we expect it. But the measure of godly faith is not 
how much do you have, it is how much do you give. And that's where God's economy is completely different than the world's. The world is saying, how much do you have? Build up what you've got. In fact, from Job all the way up to the first century in Jesus' day, the Jewish mentality was equating righteousness with riches. If you had, then you were righteous. And if you did not have, well, then you were a sinner. That's the only reason why you would be impoverished, right? That's what the Jews believed. But it had nothing to do with what they had. God comes along and in Torah law, He established the flat tax. The Bible calls it a tithe. Fair and equal. And we've talked about this before. Please don't take this legalistically because I don't believe... All legalism went away with the law. You know that? That we now are free in Christ Jesus. So this is a suggestion. This is not a rule, hard and fast. But what's beautiful about the tithe, that 10%, and and don't kid yourself, if if you're putting in 1.5% of your income, that's not a tithe. It's it's an offering, it's giving, and you can decide to do that, that's fine, but it's not a tithe. Tithe is 10%. 10% across the board is completely fair. For the person who makes 100 bucks, 10%, $10. For the person who makes a thousand, hundred dollars, ten percent, completely fair. I've been thinking a lot about this, especially through this last season. A lot has been said about the wealthy paying their fair share. The wealthy need to pay more. That really bugs me, not because I'm wealthy. But I'll tell you why that bugs me. It doesn't take into account the sweat equity that that person put into receiving that wealth. In fact, there are a lot of things that are not accounted for in just saying, hey, that guy makes over X amount of dollars, he should pay more than this person. Why? How is that fair? Flat tax is fair. 10% across the board. That was God's standard with Israel. And we see that displayed. And it's the one time God in the Hebrew Scriptures says, test me. Bring the whole tithe and see what I do. Try me on this. It's the only time God says, test me. And so I I think, personally, the tithe is an outstanding, biblical, standard starting point for our giving. You know, well, well, Paul, I, I read ahead, Rick, and he doesn't say anything about tithing. No, because he doesn't want to limit the churches. Paul knows if he says 10%, that'll be the measure. It's not about that in the church today. People say, the tithe is not in the New Testament. No, we're supposed to be much more generous than that. That's just a starting point. And I get it. That freaks out people today. How in the world? What can, have you seen my budget, Rick? No, have you seen mine? It's not the point. It's not about what you have. It's about what you give. Check this out. Paul quotes here, In verse 15, he who gathered much did not have too much. And he who gathered little had no lack. What's he quoting? You've got to go all the way back to the book of Exodus. Chapter 16, you can turn there or I'll just read it to you. I love the context here. Starting about midway through verse 13, it says, In the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the layer of dew evaporated... (laughs) Behold, on the surface of the ground there was a fine, flake-like thing, fine as the frost on the ground. 
And the sons of Israel saw it. They said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread which the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it every man as much as he should eat. You shall take an omer apiece according to the number of persons each of you has in his tent. So if there are five people in the tent, five omers. Ten people in the tent, ten omers. One person, one omer. Everybody gets an omer. Okay? And then he goes on and says, The sons of Israel did so, and some gathered much. Why? Because there were many people in the tent. And some gathered little, because there were just a few. And when they measured it out to an omer, he who, here's Paul's quote, he who gathered much had no excess. And he who gathered little had no lack. Every man gathered as much as he should eat. And it is a perfect example for Paul to draw off of because he's talking about dough. He's talking about bread, our daily bread, our sustenance. Oh, by the way, what happened to those who didn't follow the plan? See, God said, I want you to scoop it up, bag it up, and save it as long as you can. No, He didn't. He said, an omer a day. For the day. And you need to finish it by evening. And do not save it. What happened? Moses said, let no man leave any of it until morning. But they did not listen to Moses. And some left part of it till morning. We're always trying to save up. And it bred worms and became foul. And Moses was angry with them. They gathered it morning by morning, every man as much as he should eat. But when the sun grew hot, it would melt. Wouldn't that be an interesting turn of events to happen with cash and banking? (laughs) When the sun comes up in the sky, all of a sudden our money just starts to melt away. Hey, isn't that the way it is in my house? It's amazing how quickly money melts. But I think there's a principle here. The prophet Haggai, chapter 1, verse 6, wrote, He who earns, earns wages to put into a purse with holes. I'm like, I have that wallet. (laughs) It's always going out. It's always melting away. Listen, in Haggai's day, they were emphasizing their own welfare, their own home building, their own properties and, and sites, while the house of the Lord, the temple, lay desolate. Think that ever happens in the church? Do you know that if everybody in the church, if Christians worldwide, if we just, every person just tithed, 10% a person, no more, no less, if everybody tithed, well, I can give you the stats in America, there wouldn't be a single church in debt. Every single church debt would be paid off. And every single hungry person in the country would be fed. If people in the church just tithed. Equal. Across the board. For everyone. We wonder why sometimes our income seems to melt away. Why we seem to be coming up short. Why we have a budget year where the giving seems to level off when it never had before until we notice that maybe we're being more concerned about our welfare than about His. Or the things that He's called us to do. In the context, let me give you some comfort with this. In the context of talking about our daily needs, 
Jesus said, seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. Matthew 6.33 And what? All these things will be added to you. Do you believe that? See, every time I quote that verse, i got to ask that same question. Do you believe that? Do I really believe that? That if I seek first the kingdom, I put Him first, I, I offer a first fruits of my wages, of my income, and I trust Him first, and I seek His righteousness, that all these things, they'll be added to me. Jesus said, do not worry about tomorrow. Why? Because by tomorrow morning, the manna is rotten and worm infested. Don't worry about tomorrow. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Tomorrow will take care of itself, Jesus said. And so Paul says, get busy. Give equally. I'm not asking anyone to give more than anybody else. Just just give. Whatever you've determined in your heart, he will say. We'll talk about that on Sunday. Whatever you, you know, you decide, but just do it, man. Just, Just do it. And then he goes on to talk about the team that he's sending with this letter, beginning with Titus, who is now going to go back to Corinth. They love Titus in Corinth, by the way. He's a good man. They love him. He loves them. He comes to Paul with that comforting report we talked about last week. And and there's a great relationship. So Paul's going to send Titus back as one of three, actually, emissaries. Verse 16 Paul says, but thanks be to God who puts the same earnestness on your behalf in the heart of Titus. For he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he has gone to you of his own accord. Uh, We have sent along with him the brother whose fame in the things of the gospel has spread through all the churches. And not only this, but he has also been appointed by the churches to travel with us in this gracious work. That is the collection that we're talking about, which is being administered by us for the glory of the Lord Himself and to show our readiness, taking precaution so that no one will discredit us in our administration of this generous gift. Verse 21, For we have regard for what is honorable, not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of all men. We have sent with them our brother, here's the third guy, So first there's Titus, and then back in verse 18, there's the brother whose fame has gone out. And now the third one, we have sent with him our brother, whom we have often tested and found diligent in many things, but now even more diligent because of his great confidence in you. And as for Titus, oh, he's my partner and fellow worker among you. As for our brethren, they are messengers of the churches, a glory to Christ Therefore, openly before the churches, show them the proof of your love and of our reason for boasting about you. Who are these other two brothers? We'll, we'll get to that in a minute. Uh, some think one of them, the famous brother, might be Luke. But again, hold that for a second. Number six. Giving is an act of integrity. Giving is an act of integrity. Note this, that he says, the churches, verse 19, the churches appointed these guys, not Paul. These men were appointed by the churches, this three-man delegation. Why? To protect the integrity of the offering. And as Paul brought this collection, this Jewish national fund, if you will, to Jerusalem, 
even then he himself was going to be accompanied by eight men. Acts chapter 20 verse 4 names them. Luke, Sopater, Aristarchus, Secundus, Gaius, which is Titus, Timothy, Tychicus, and Trophimus. Now of that list of eight, I would make the assumption that three of them, including Titus, were probably the Corinthian delegation. So these two unnamed brothers in here are among probably that group of eight, having been decided on by the churches to go and receive the collection of funds from Corinth now, and bring it back to Paul and accompany Paul back to Jerusalem. Giving is an act of integrity. Paul didn't touch the money. In my opinion, no pastor should. In 13 years of the Bridge Fellowship, I have never touched the tithes or offerings. I haven't counted them up. I haven't looked to see who was giving what. I have no idea what anybody gives. It is so liberating to be in that position and not to know. I think part of the reason why I'm able to speak honestly and and boldly about church finances and giving is because I don't know what people give, so I don't know if I'm offending you or not. (laughs) And if you're really good at keeping a stony face, you know, a poker face, which by the way you shouldn't have, you should be giving that money to the Lord, not to a poker game. (laughs) I wouldn't know. I wouldn't know what people give. I don't know. I haven't touched. I I am so thankful. And you guys who are part of our counting team... I cannot tell you how much I appreciate you. That's one of those quiet, unsung things in the church. Guys, you take the time to go through it all and count it, and, and while at the same time avoiding looking at the names on the checks, just counting up the money and, and making sure it's deposited and taken care of. And, and, and for that to be taken care of is, is marvelous. But there are others who do the counting. Others who make the deposits, and I just spend it. <laughs> no, that's not true. <laughs> the thing is this, integrity matters. It especially matters. Because as, as Paul says here, he says we have regard, verse 21, for what is honorable, not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men. People are watching the church. The world is watching. We are trying to be above reproach in a world that tends to reproach. So we make every effort to work with integrity. We just found out, got a, a, an email from the county, right, Eva, regarding our wetlands project out here. You know how I love wetlands and how I am an, a wetland enthusiast and an environmentalist par excellence. And we did all this work and had to put all this money into recreating a wetland because our driveway went across the wetland and ruined it for the salmon who were swimming across our property before. <laughs> Got to make sure the eagles have a home to land on a tree that actually is planted in. I don't. I just. I don't get any of it. So, so here I am. That you know, I'm very cynical about the whole thing. And we get this email saying, "Okay, well, it's it's time for your first uh, review." Supposed to have three reviews over five years. They got to come back and check. Make sure that nature, that we're helping nature do what it's supposed to do. Do not get it. Wetlands fees for this process over the next five years, I haven't told you this yet, Doug, $9,800. Do you know how much we had to spend just to recreate the wetland? Over $30,000 when this building was being built. 
You know how sick it makes me as a pastor to watch that kind of money go to wetlands when it should be going to ministry? And so Eva says, yeah, the, the email's here. They're quoting us about $9,800 over the next five years just to, to have this process done and followed through. And in my mind, I'm going, we got to blow it off. Blow it off and pay the fines, man. That's what we'll do. <laughs> yeah. Go ahead and charge us. Whatever. And then I looked at the paperwork and I saw that we had committed to doing this. You know what? we got to pay it. Because we made a commitment. And the integrity of the Bridge Fellowship is what's on the line with Island County. And if that integrity can be of use in saving one person down at the county, so be it. It's worth it. It's integrity that's the issue. It's not the wetlands. Like I said, I could care less. But we agreed with Island County to follow through with their code. That's kind of what Paul's talking about here. We're going to send these three guys. They will collect the funds. We've got to keep this above board. We've got to do this with integrity. And again, when they came back, they'll join Paul. Eight men will come with Paul all the way back to Jerusalem so that no one can claim Paul was pocketing this great work. Integrity matters. Now, why does Paul name Titus but not the other two? I mean, he, it's almost, he almost goes out of his way not to name the other two. The brother whose fame is known and the other brother who has been tested and is diligent. Why name Titus? Well, they already knew Titus. He'd already been sent. And Paul had already talked about Titus, so there was that familiarity. So he he names Titus because, of course, they're going to see him. He's the one who's going to be carrying the letter. So I'm sending Titus to you. Here's the thing. The other two names don't matter. They are not named because they do not matter. The Lord knew this was going to be Scripture, not just a letter to Corinth. What is the Holy Spirit's purpose in inspiring Scripture? I'll let Jesus tell you, John 16, 13, when He, the Spirit of truth, comes, He will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on His own initiative, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify Me, Jesus says. For he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. And twice, Paul gives us, I believe, the reason for the unnamed duo of this delegation in verse 19, where he says, This gracious work is being administered by us for the glory of the Lord. And again, in verse 23, he says, A glory to Christ. So why aren't they named? It doesn't matter why they're not named. Because really, number seven, giving is an act of opportunity. Giving is an act of opportunity. Opportunity for what? Opportunity for glorifying God. When you give, when you offer to the Lord, you are glorifying Him. Do you realize that? That it's not just a measure of your faith or your faithfulness. But in considering His graciousness to you, His love for you, and all the things that we've talked about, when you offer something to the Lord, you are in that moment worshiping God. 
You are bringing glory to Him. This team of guys who would go to Corinth didn't matter who they were. They were involved in a great opportunity that ultimately, once the funds were delivered, wasn't going to be about how great all the churches was. It was going to be about God being praised. The Lord being glorified and honored. And that's the point of this. That giving is an act of opportunity. The opportunity of glorifying God through Jesus Christ. Do you think that way when you give? Do you have like a little mini worship service when you're dropping the check in the box? You know? You should. Because it is a glory to God. Chapter 9, quickly. We're going to scoot through some things here. It is superfluous for me, Paul writes, to write to you about this ministry to the saints. For I I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the Macedonians, namely, that Achaia has been prepared since last year. Achaia is, again, Corinth. It's Cancrea. It's the Peloponnesian Peninsula. Achaia has been prepared since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But... I have sent the brethren in order that our boasting about you might not be made empty in this case, so that, as I was saying, you may be prepared. Heads up, they all know you promised to give. Better get it done. Verse 4, Otherwise, if any Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to speak of you, will be put to shame by this confidence. So I thought it necessary to urge the brethren that they would go on ahead to you and arrange beforehand your previously promised bountiful gift so that the same would be ready as a bountiful gift and not affected by covetousness. What do you mean covetousness, Paul? He means you've determined what you're going to give, but in the last minute you don't because you need to hang on to it. Because you're coveting what God has given you. No, I'm gonna. I I need it this week. I'll I'll, I'll give next month. Covetousness. Another word for that is actually greed. Greed doesn't just happen on Wall Street. Greed happens on Main Street in churches on Sunday mornings when people intending to give stop themselves because they just don't think they can afford to. But listen, giving is an act of encouragement. An act of encouragement. That's number eight, if I'm tracking right here. Giving is an act of encouragement. It was Corinth's commitment in the first place that had so encouraged Macedonia. Their commitment made the Macedonian churches so excited that they wanted to give too, causing the Macedonians to give abundantly. And now Paul's using that same motivation, their abundant giving, to come right back to Corinth and encourage Corinth to follow through. And that really is how the church works. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24, Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. It doesn't mean we're going to have a Sunday morning session on what everybody gives so we can encourage each other. Because I still believe that that giving truly is between you and the Lord. But giving is an act of encouragement. Let me just ask you this. Can you give a little more than you do? Can Can you do a little better than you're doing right now? Maybe you don't give at all. Can you give some? Maybe you give the equivalent of 5%. Can you give 6? 
You know why I told you earlier that October was a record-giving month? So that you would know this is not about trying to increase our budget. God provides for this fellowship. Always has, always will. But your giving will increase faith. It will increase love. It will increase opportunity to glorify God. It will increase your awareness of His grace. It will impact you personally in ways that I I cannot explain. You have to experience it. And I believe that's why Paul is all after Corinth on this. It's not about the money. Paul clarifies he's not trying to shame them. He actually has confidence in the completion of their commitment. Now, skip down to verse 13. We're going to do 6 through 12 on Sunday. And Paul says, because of the proof given by this ministry, they will glorify God. See, that's what's going to take place. When this arrives in Jerusalem, oh man, worship is going to break out. For your obedience to your confession of the gospel of Christ and for the liberality of your contribution to them and to all, while they also, by prayer on your behalf, yearn for you because of the surpassing grace of God in you. And then he says... Thanks be to God for His indescribable gift. Indescribable? Unspeakable. Inexpressible. His gift that man, it just goes beyond words. It is beyond description. When you pause to think about that gift, and we will, probably on Christmas Eve. The gift of God that is beyond Description. I sat and I listened to my senior pastor back in California for four Christmases in a row preach that verse. The first time I thought it was cool. The second time I thought maybe he forgot. The third time, we're calling the home. And the fourth time, I began to get it. Thanks be to God for His indescribable gift. Again, we squabble over things. We discuss things. We we mull over giving. Look at what God gave. Look at who God gave. You can't... There are not words for the eternality of the gift of Jesus Christ. And before we talk about one red cent, we need to look at His red blood and, and understand... The gift that was given by Jesus. And I think, honestly, as Paul is writing this or or, or dictating it, and he says out loud, thanks be to God for His indescribable gift. I think part of what was on Paul's mind was perhaps imagining the response in Jerusalem. When he came and poured out before them, what's this? They might say. Well, it's the offering from all the Gentile churches that you were uncertain about. It's a representation of their love and concern for you. Indescribable. Yes, it was a monetary gift coming out of the Gentile daughter churches throughout Asia. Now, coming back to Jerusalem, how marvelous would that moment be? But I want you to see something and we'll end on this. Paul circles back here at the end in a very unexpected way. In fact, you wouldn't see it. Unless we stopped and caught this. He circles back around 
to a word that he has been sprinkling throughout chapters 8 and 9, throughout this whole section. Remember, there weren't chapters for Paul. It was just this section, this part of the letter. And in this part of the letter, he uses this word ten times. He uses the word 19 times throughout the entire letter, ten times right here. So the significance of the word is not to be missed, and the word is grace. Charis. Charis in the Greek. And when you see the Greek word charis, when it pops up, it's not always translated grace. But it is present ten times in chapters 8 and chapters and chapter 9. Listen to this. Back in chapter 8, verse 1. Remember how he started? We make known to you the grace of God. Chapter 8, verse 4. He says, the favor, charis, favor, of participation in the support of the saints. In chapter 8, verse 6, he talks about this gracious work. It is this benevolent work. It's charis. He says that in chapter 6. He says it again, this benevolent work. In chapter 7, it's the word charis. He uses it in that key passage, that key verse, chapter 9, for you know the grace, the charis of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so you through His poverty might become rich. Man, that is grace. In verse 19 of chapter 8, He says this charis, this gracious work. In chapter 9, verse 8, he says, God is able to make all charis, all grace, abound to you. In chapter 9, verse 14, he says, the surpassing charis of God in you, the all-surpassing grace of God. But listen, listen, charis is oddly translated two other times. I just gave you eight of the times. The, The last two are interesting. And I wouldn't even have known it was charis. Chapter 8, verse 16, where Paul says, But thanks be to God who puts the same earnestness on your behalf in the heart of Titus. And the word charis is translated there, thanks. And here in verse 15 of chapter 9, thanks be to God for His indescribable gift. Charis be to God. If you've ever wondered why people say at mealtime, let's say grace, that's why. Because the word grace is charis. Let's show favor to God. Let's show goodwill to the Lord. For charis can be translated thanks, goodwill, or, or favor. Because, number nine, final point, giving is an act of thanksgiving. Isn't God's timing marvelous? <laughs> Here we are a week away from Thanksgiving, and this is what we're talking about. Charis. Grace. It is not giving, listen, is not repayment. You don't have enough to repay God. But we give. When you give, it is an act of charis. You give because of His charis given to you, but it is an act of charis to God For what, or better yet, for who He gave. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15.57, Thanks be to God, charis be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
And when I drop that check in the box, I have a moment with the Lord. It's a moment of grace. It is recognizing His grace poured out to me immeasurably. But it is also me showing favor to my God. Showing grace to my Lord. It's a moment of grace, faith, love, follow-through, equality, integrity, opportunity, encouragement, and thanksgiving. Well, aren't you limiting all this teaching to someone giving a check to a church? Aren't you limiting it when you're saying it's just all about money? Well, it is. This letter, this section, chapters 8 and chapter 9, are all about money. Granted, I'll give this to anybody. Anything I give to the Lord is an act of thanksgiving. But my friends, listen, we have got to avoid what I call the cop-out. And what's the cop-out? I already said it earlier. I tithe of my time. I tithe of my energy. I tithe of my service. I tithe my mint, my dill, my cumin. I give in other ways. Listen, you can. Praise God for the person who says, I'm going to serve 10% of my week. Praise God for the person who says, I'm going to pour 10% of my energy into the kingdom. I'm going to give 10%. But if you set money aside, if we box that gift up and set it off to the side, we deny ourselves one of the most marvelous aspects of our faith walk Uh, of any the opportunity to give Paul is talking about money don't miss the caress of giving the grace of giving you know it it may seem as as little and as insignificant as dropping loose change in a tin canister but the truth is when we give monetarily It reveals God's work of grace in you. And all the while, while we're giving and trusting the Lord, He is establishing a kingdom. And we get to be part of that. Father, may this impress our mentality. And yes, affect our giving. For when we pause and consider where this is coming from, and that in asking us to open up our hands and trust You with our giving, that what You are doing is opening up our hearts for more faith, to enjoy more grace, to be involved with something far beyond ourselves. And I would ask, Father, that You offer the charis, the grace to everyone gathered here tonight, truly, Lord, to our entire fellowship, to give not in such a way that our budget goes gangbusters, but to give in such a way that our faith explodes. In Jesus' name, Amen.